Welcome to Grumpy GDPR. My name is Miloš Novovic and I'm an Associate Professor of Law at BI Norwegian Business School. All opinions today are entirely my own. And I'm Ria Alexandra Valle from No Ties Consulting. Yet another week, yet another grumpy GDPR day. Uh, in today's episode, we are doing something very special. We are wishing hello to a person who has been described as a privacy superhero, data protection superhero, rather, to me by the app. And uh, his name is David Rosenthal. David has done data and IT law for well over 20 years, and he's a partner at Wisher Law Firm in Switzerland. He also lectures at Federal Institute of Technology in Zurich and at the University of Basel. Hi there, David, and uh, welcome to the Grumpy GDPR. Yeah, hi Milos, hi Ri, and very uh, much thanks to you for inviting me to this episode. I've been listening to your show and I find it's great. Oh, that's so amazing to hear. Thank you. Yeah, we're so super excited to have you with us today, David. Thank you so much for taking the time. I know you've been working hard on this FAQ that we'll discuss uh, a little bit later. But first, uh, since our podcast is, after all, uh, called uh, Grumpy GDPR, on a scale from 0 to 10, how grumpy GDPR-wise would you say that you are? Yeah, I'm, I'm a bit mixed on that. On the one hand, I think a lot of things are going wrong in the wrong direction. On the other hand, uh, this gives me the opportunity to think so much about all these kind of things and how to solve them. And I like solve pro solving problems. And after all, I mean, we, all of us who advise on these kind of things are the main beneficiaries of this. So sometimes I have to thank actually the authorities doing and creating all this. Sometimes I would call it a mess because we then can clean it up. And there are a lot of interesting questions I wouldn't have otherwise. So. I wouldn't say I'm actually grumpy. The only thing that I'm a bit concerned about is that the discussion is getting more and more political. So it's actually no longer a discussion and that makes and gives me a bit a concern. So that's why I also like very much uh, these opportunities like here because we can actually discuss and have different opinions. But at the end, we, we really discuss about it and do not just have positions and fight each other. That is very, very true. Um, but, you know, we did ask for a quantitative uh, rather than qualitative answer <laughs> for a good reason, though, because you have devised. I yes, know <laughs> you have devised an incredible system for kind of putting, uh, what shall we say, a number on your risks. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, you have been very well known as an author of a document meant to help people assess transfers. Uh, specifically international data transfers. Uh, could you tell us a bit more about that? What is a TIA? Yes, uh, happy to do so. A TIA is basically an assessment we are required to do now uh, to find out whether certain problematic laws in the countries we transfer data to will apply to that data. And those problematic laws are lawful access laws, so laws that allow the foreign authorities, the government, for example, in the US, to access the data in a manner that is not compatible with our law here. And we have to find out whether that will happen uh, in our particular case, because the contracts that we enter into with the people who get our data in those countries, they won't uh, protect the data subjects against these kind of access. And this process of finding out whether that will actually happen. That's what we refer to as a transfer impact assessment. 
Yeah, so you mentioned that uh, now we are required to do them. So this is, as you see it, a legal requirement or is it more of a recommendation? Yeah, I think if you ask the data protection authorities and if you look at the decisions of the European Court of Justice uh, following the Schrems II decision, then uh, this is certainly a, a legal requirement. Uh, we can have a dispute about that, whether that's actually really the case. In Switzerland, for example, we revised the law without putting into such specific requirements, even though everybody knew about what was going on in these other countries. And one could well argue to say that the political decision, at least for Switzerland, was made and that's where I'm coming from, was made, that this is not necessary. Nevertheless, under the EU law, it's actually not even a GDPR question. It's a question of, of basic guarantees, and there one can, of course, always uh, argue, and that's what the court has done, that uh, there are some minimal guarantees that need to be uh, warranted, and if that's not the case, then it's simply illegal, no matter what the GDPR actually says, whether the GDPR contains the word transfer impact assessment or says we have to do that. And that was basically the finding of the court, so I don't think there is much point arguing that we, uh, whether this is just a recommendation. I think the big discussion is about what does it actually mean, and there people have different opinions on what it actually means. Yeah, and would you say that it's uh, is doing a TIA a silver bullet for Schrems II compliance? Yeah, I mean, nothing is actually a silver bullet if you ask a lawyer. And that's why I also evaded your initial question, because that's what we lawyers usually always do. Uh, but I think if you have, in all practical means, have the necessary contracts in place, if you're transfer as such now, taking away this whole question about U.S. government access, and we're now talking about mainly about transfers to the U.S. because that's where all the focus is. There are many other transfers, but luckily people don't really think too much about that. So if we look at transfers to the U.S., then if we have the contract in place as we had prior to Schrems II, uh, then I think the main issue is indeed having this transfer impact assessment. Uh, but uh, I mean, even if you say just a transfer impact assessment, as you all know, and Dri, I know especially from your side, it's a huge task to do, and it will be a much too huge task for many companies actually to perform such an assessment. So we will maybe have to also speak about how we could make this a bit easier for people. And you have certainly tried to do so with all the tools and templates that you are sharing and you have this TIA toolkit. And this is why I call you the TIA superhero. And uh, this morning you published a no less than 94 page PDF uh, on, um, on your method. So first of all, why should people take your word uh, for this? Why should they trust uh, the content of your FAQ? Yeah, they don't have to trust it. They can read it. And I have made many publications. And if people read my publications, they, they will see that I also explain and give reasons. Uh, and a part of it, a third of this FAQ is not about my method. It's about a basic primer and introduction in U.S. lawful access laws, which I think is very important because when I talk also with data protection authorities, my impression is that many of them actually do not even understand the basics of those laws, uh, which is a big problem because uh, they then make wrong conclusions. And that's why I thought it's important to provide these basics. And it's not just my word. I mean, you can read all, I 
I've put in all the sources. So you can have a different conclusion out of that. You can have different interpretations, but all the sources are in there. So, and that's a basic concept that I always try to follow. I, I put on the table everything, and then people can make up their own minds. In my practical experience, because I've used also the method that I've developed many times, all the people, all of them who have looked at this more closely, they at the end understood and said that concept works. It's not necessarily simple, so I'm not sure actually whether it made life easier, but I think it's much more... Uh, it's it's much more precise and objective as almost anything else that I have seen. Uh, and uh, that's actually where I try to solve a problem, not to make life easier in performing these assessments, because it can be a nightmare doing that, finding out all the necessary information you need. But that's, I think, where then people, and because everything's open source, they can look at it and, and, and they don't have to take my word. They can check for themselves. But that's actually, that sounds super nice. I have to share, actually, uh, we recorded another episode this morning with a representative of the Danish Data Protection Agency, and they actually explicitly mentioned that in addition to the assessment of the US data transfer, what was involved in the specific Google-related processing was also potential uh, data transfer to India and Singapore, and that was something that was missing from their risk assessment. So that's the first, uh, I think, observation, which uh, I would love to hear a bit from your side on. And the second one is just a question of competence, as in um, actual competence, which a data protection agency needs to have. So it's not enough to read the laws in an isolated context, right? Uh, I always do this when teaching just uh, commercial law to first-year students. I say you can't read a foreign law, you can't read a contract without actually understanding all the legal context of a particular legal system. So say that I'm assessing Indian law, right? It's not enough to read their Data Protection Act. I need to understand the whole framework around it. So I don't think that even data protection agencies can actually do that, uh, let alone controllers and processors around the EU. So what's your take on that? How do we secure sufficient competence to assess these foreign laws, which perhaps go even beyond the US law, which it's rather easy, not rather easy, but on which people can look things up. <laughs> not, not the assessment. I'm, it's yeah. probably... <laughs> the US law is probably much more documented. Actually, there is tons of materials on how US lawful access works. The problem, I think, is that... Uh, people don't take the time and they don't try to understand the concepts behind it because they probably do not have the time. I had uh, one uh, data protection head of a data protection authority who told me, look, David, uh, uh, I have maybe uh, voiced some, some, some skepticism about your method, but actually I did not have any time to really study it. So uh, it's more like... Uh, uh, a political or an opportunistic comment on that part. With regard to India, I mean, I've created a, a transfer impact analysis for India as well. How did I do that? I went to local lawyers and asked them to provide me the necessary information, which is where it actually starts, because this whole lawful access kind of thing is a very own set of law which you have to understand how it works. It's not data protection law. So don't think that a data protection lawyer understands how 
uh, lawful access works. It's maybe more the criminal lawyer or national security lawyer. And that's why I found it already very difficult in finding out about what are foreign lawful access laws. I've actually used that, or that was one of the other documents I've created. I've created a special form that allows you to instruct actually local counsel to provide you the right answers because I've seen many legal opinions that are essentially useless for creating transfer impact assessments, which I thought is, is a problem because you spend so much money on it and you get back some type of generic description that you cannot use to make the necessary decisions, whether the transfer, and that's always the same point, is actually a problem or not. And you cannot go and look as the European Court of Justice, who just in general said, that US lawful access law is a problem. It did not assess any single case there. And that's what you have to do. And that work hasn't been done. So uh, we have done this then for India with local council and created a transfer impact assessment form of its own. And we have done so the same thing for Russia, for China, for others. But uh, of course that costs a lot of money and some people have to be paid. Luckily I've been able to convince the clients to actually pay for it and allow me to publish it, to give it, put it to the community so, so people can use it and we don't have to redo that work. But that's, that's the problem. When I go to foreign lawyers, a lot of them, of course, first have to understand themselves what is lawful access law about. Do you know the Norwegian uh, lawful access laws, how they work? If I go and ask my Swiss colleagues, most of them have no idea of what signal intelligence is done in Switzerland. And it is done in Switzerland yeah. as well. So that's where the problem starts. So how should then the data protection authorities know about this better than we do if if they uh, are not trained in that. And there I think uh, we have to admit and we have to, I think, be clear that it's basically the exporter or we as the people who advise them who has to do the job. And potentially in many cases, the problems are simply because we did not explain them sufficiently well what the problem is and why we think it's not a problem in our case. And that's what I see very often, that they may not want to listen to it is another issue. Yeah, and I, I think we, we're touching upon something that I have been very concerned about, and that is not all of this per se, but what I mentioned uh, uh, when I shared your post this morning as well, David, that this just shows how complex and how demanding this exercise is, which is pretty much an adequacy decision in itself, uh, sort of, that we expect the local carpenters to be doing when they're using Microsoft 365 or the three-person local consulting company advising only uh, only carpenters using Gmail. So there's, there's a disconnect between the requirements and what is practically possible when you see that the, the European Commission themselves, they spend typically at least one, perhaps two years years in conducting these types of exercises with a whole couple of uh, legal and technical experts and uh, on-site uh, legal firms. I, I fully agree with you and that's why I would think uh, if, if I had a request to the, to the data protection authorities, it would be actually coming up with certain, let's say, adequacy decisions, as you say, for certain setups. Of course, they cannot come and say, 
uh, Microsoft 365 is okay. That's a bit the problem for other reasons, but actually that would be the solution because come on, I mean, many of these, I've done tons of uh, M365 projects. They have a few parameters, a few things you can do. I've uh, got Microsoft to change and update their standard contract terms in Switzerland so that everybody in Switzerland has the same level of additional protection, especially for professional secrecy. So they are comparable which also means that I think it's possible to have some typical use cases so that we do not have to redo these legal opinions. I mean, if you read the EDPB guidance, then every company should spend 10 or 20,000 uh, euros on getting a legal opinion from some type of foreign law firm. I mean, you could spend that money much better in doing some pen tests or have additional security and you would get much better benefit for all the data subjects because the transfer impact assessment for these particular use cases will always be the same if you can agree on a certain standard setup and standard setups is what cloud computing is all about. Yeah. My impression though is that the data protection authorities do not want to make it easy to use these kind of providers. They tell me uh, off the record and in one case even on the record, they tell me they want to uh, make sure that no data leaves Europe and that the US-based providers are not no longer used or they are used with Europe only, 100% only setups. If that is their goal, which they declare, uh, then there is no point in doing a transfer impact assessment because it in every case will fail. And if that's what we're fighting against, then we have a fundamental problem. And I think that's what's going on. And they do know, of course, that this is not practical. When I then ask them, so what to do, then they say it may not be a risk-based approach under Chapter 5, so the transfer regulations, but you may have to take a risk-based approach in not complying with them. And that is a bit the underlying problem. So if they really would want to solve the problem in making it possible for people to use these cloud services in non-problematic setups, then uh, I believe they should come up maybe together with industry associations, maybe together with others and say, look, this is the setup, how you can use it safely. And that's uh, what we're trying to do, what I've tried to do in Switzerland to create these conditions, including contractual conditions, which are much better than in the rest of the EU today. But I had to do that on my own. I had no uh, support from the authorities whatsoever. And that's, that's a bit the problem that we're facing. They have also never said how to do a transfer impact assessment. They only say no. And that's uh, where I think uh, we can all uh, try uh, to convince them to, to probably uh, do a bit more in making the use and the safe use of, of data uh, better because the alternative is that most companies will still use these tools but uh, always hope that they will never get in contact with the data protection authorities and they may be missing on certain, let's say, protections they could have used if they had known about it and this doesn't serve the data subjects at the end. Well, I absolutely think that getting some use cases together with the industry, with the vendors themselves, uh, makes absolute sense. And uh, maybe even we could look into certifications because there are certifications as a, that could be used as a transfer tool. And in those guidelines, they outline certain setups that you could certify. And 
if you could use that in any way, uh, I think that would be beneficial as well. So um, that might be something to to think about. And um, coming back to our discussion from this morning, Milos, with the, the Danish case. So this morning there was a news story about the Helsingør uh, decision from uh, Denmark where they said that they will continue using Chromebooks. Uh, the deadline is uh, tomorrow. We are recording this on the 2nd of August. And uh, so they they have stated now that they have feel they have sent everything that they are required to send of documentation to the Danish Data Protection Agency. So it'll be very, very exciting to see what the Danish DPA is going to respond on that because the municipality has all said that they must explicitly tell them now what is lacking for them to continue the use. Mm -hmm. And and I hope maybe that at the end, uh, if there are some open questions, uh, they are actually resolved by the courts because one of the big problems we now have is that the only ones who make such statements or assessments on the side of the authority are the data protection authorities themselves and and they are not doing that in a neutral way as at least in m most cases that i see and so i think maybe at the end we do have to listen to what the courts say and uh, that's uh, probably will take still a few years so we have clarity and until that happens i i guess we will remain in in a, in a certain state of limbo on that part so i'm very interested to see what they then will actually do actually i have seen projects cloud projects that have been approved uh, by data protection authorities inofficially so not not on public documents and uh, what they have done is they have tried to relabel the risk-based approach uh, in a way that you, you do not call it risk-based approach anymore. So they're trying to get somehow out of the corner they're in without basically admitting that this is what we're talking about. And I do believe that there may also be some misunderstandings. What risks are we actually talking about? I mean, you asked me at the beginning of, of the show about the number I didn't tell you. Probably it's a five <laughs> or maybe a six. Uh, but uh, I mean, what what's the number that results out of my forms or my method really is? And that's an interesting question because many people believe somehow it's like magic or you can't make and create an assessment with just the number out of it. But if you ask me, I would say it tells you how confident you are that this problematic lawful access will not apply in your case. And so if you go to a lawyer and ask him, get, do me a legal opinion and ask him, how sure are you? And if he will tell you, I'm 90% sure that these laws will not apply, or I'm 90% sure that I will win your case, will you go for it or not? And the answer is probably, you will certainly do. And the, the fact that we say, there is still 10% uncertainty that a court will see it differently, uh, is automatically uh, understood by some people as, okay, then we, we actually accept that a lawful access takes place. I think in the Danish decision, it's also, if you read it between the lines, you see that, oh gosh, if we say that 1% is the remaining risk, so I'm 99% sure that it doesn't happen, then if I do 100 transfers, then at least one of them will be trapped. And, and this is simply not true. 
it's it's you you it, it it doesn't work together with when you look at how lawful access works even mass surveillance works it's it's simply a, a, a logical fallacy if you think in that way but i understand it if you don't think about what is the concept behind how we do things because we're used that lawyers tell us oh this won't happen and we take their word for it but if you read their legal opinions and i'm sure you you know them because you may have self uh, written them in that way you always come up and say but i can't guarantee that a court will see it in the same way i can't guarantee that all this will be interpreted in that way and that's actually what we're doing because uh, that's what you need to do in a in a transfer impact assessment and i think the big dispute among the data protection authorities who really try to do it right, not the ones who just want to say we want to stop any transfer, the other ones, and the discussion about the risk-based approach is which factors can you take into account. What many people do not understand when they look at my method is that a large part of the assessment is actually an assessment of legal arguments, which is exactly what they ask to do. And uh, because I split this up in different pieces, I need a technique to combine them. And that's where I myself discovered these statistics, because if you have five arguments and they all come to a certain conclusion, and if all five conditions have to be fulfilled, how do you connect them to form a big picture? And that's where I suddenly realized using statistics is the way to do so. And this is nothing special. I didn't invent that. And this gives us a better way to understand how our multiple arguments that we have work together. And therefore, it's not some type of we've looked at 10 cases and in five cases, a lawful access happened. It's about how we combine arguments, but we still need these arguments. And if people uh, are sure about all these arguments, then the, the, the outcome will be zero or 100. But since most people don't, aren't fully sure about the legal arguments they use, we get to these different figures. And when people start realizing that, they immediately buy it. I had discussions with prosecutors in Switzerland who actually can bring you into jail if you transfer data outside of Switzerland uh, without doing this. And they said, this is better than most of what we see. And uh, someone, uh, if someone relies on that, that's actually fine for us because they took the time to look at this concept. And I think that's uh, where the problem yeah, lies. Yeah, I think maybe uh, the, uh, the assumption that you often come across uh, following the Schrems 2 ruling is that the assumption is that FISA 702 applies to all US transfers. So that is the extreme version I've seen. So mm -hmm. could you speak a little bit to that? Sure. And I think this is really one of the root problems. Uh, data protection authorities believe that if a transfer ends up in the hands of an electronic communications service provider, yeah. that's it. And this is not true because there are many more conditions that need to be fulfilled before 
uh, the, this provider will grab your data and hand it over to the government. And before that has happened, if that doesn't happen, then it's not a problem. And so if you look at, for example, all these NSA documents and it's interesting stuff, then you find out that the mass surveillance is much more specific than a lot of people think. Yeah. So for example, let's assume that re you and I exchange emails using a US-based server about a terrorist. Mm. The terrorist is searched. There is a search term for the terrorist, uh, the, his email address then our communications, because we are not targets, will not be subject to this mass surveillance, uh, which is, I don't want to get too technical, is referred to as about communications, which was a big problem in the US as well, which is why they restricted what they're searching for. And so if you also look at other aspects like the territoriality aspect and what do they have to actually search for, you can come up with a lot of use cases where you see that if you apply them to typical cloud situations, they're actually not in scope. Mm. But you need to do that deep dive and look, and, and often there are five or six of these elements that you need to combine. So you cannot just look at, is somebody an electronic communication service yeah. provider? That said, this is complicated yeah. stuff. And I agree with you that the carpenter is not able to <laughs> and, do And that. if you look at the uh, infamous use case six of the uh, EDPB recommendations uh, from uh, on supplementary measures, so this is probably the most discussed use case from uh, from uh, those, uh, those recommendations. But if you look at it, it it's specifically, and it always refers to the specific transfer at hand. So I would argue that you, if you can demonstrate sufficiently that your transfer in the context that it is would not be subject to a FISA 702 request or any other problematic laws, of course, then the transfer should be fine. And one, one case that we, we could raise since it's uh, on the table, so to speak, is the Danish one with uh, the municipality using Google Chromebooks and Google Workspace for Education, where they have contracted with US Ireland and all personal data is being stored inside of Europe. However, there is uh, a potential support scenario here being delivered from, amongst others, uh, Google US. So. What is your take, uh, so to speak, on uh, on that scenario? Yeah, I believe it's out of scope. There are a number of, of arguments there, but maybe one of the most important one is that the US entity of Google is not having this Danish municipality as its customer. So it will not have an account on its own records for that customer, and it will not have to search and even if it had to search, it would search for account identifiers. So unless the municipality would be a target of the NSA, which it most likely is not, uh, and if it were a customer of that US provider, then uh, we could have a discussion about whether they would have to pass along this information to the US government. But this way, uh, they, they are uh, essentially out of scope because the customer is somebody else's customer. And there is also this big misconception that automatically all uh, the affiliates or subsidiaries of U.S. companies are subject to the same laws. This is simply not true. And even if you, if you look at 
at, at the provisions in law, which you said, Milos, before, you, you can go and look at it and you will see that this is even based on the letter law, not the case. So uh, it's actually one of the recommendations I have is that you do use European uh, contract parties, whether the data center is in Europe or not. Uh, is in those situations not essential. So if you have a US-based provider that simply uses a European data center, then you may still be in problem. But if your actual provider is sitting in Europe, in Ireland, uh, then, uh, then uh, there will not be a FISA request being sent to Ireland. And if it were, uh, uh, the Irish uh, Google would certainly not, uh, not, um, not fulfill it. And uh, then, of course, it depends on what is the type of access that Google in the US has. And there are more techniques than simply encryption to, to restrict that kind of access in a manner that from a legal point of view, uh, it is not relevant anymore. And that's yet another misconception is that people believe that the only way how you can prevent a U.S. provider from handing out your data to the U.S. government is that it has technical access, which is not true, because there are more conditions under U.S. law that need to be fulfilled, and therefore the setup in the case that you have described. So having this U.S.-based provider, you have the contract with the European subsidiary, the U.S.-based provider simply providing support on certain occasions, I believe is pretty safe. But just to just to basically sum it up, so what I understand uh, is that it's more nuanced than just saying every transfer to the US is problematic, even if we accept this kind of a zero risk approach, because it's not so that all the problematic laws are always going to be applicable in themselves. But I think I have a question if we take one step back and just look into the broad picture. Would you say that all of this discussion on the very nuanced things in foreign surveillance laws could actually end up being harmful to, you know, the compliance with the core GDPR principles? In a sense that, you know, if everything is a crime, then nothing is a crime. You know, like we have those, it's illegal to consult with a known pirate and like, sure, it's illegal to transfer data, you know, to the US per chance the NSA searches for it. But what about, you know, data minimization, purpose limitation, storage? Do you think that those principles could end up being hurt? I, I believe so. This is happening because we're putting so much effort, so much focus, so much money on the question of US lawful access without even understanding what it really is that we lose sight of the other issues. And that's where I think the harm happens. I, I have told you that I've had a lot of projects in the cloud area. They spent most of the time on this lawful access topic, even though it's clear that it is in, 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 in all respect a non-issue for those particular setups. They did not spend a lot of time in assessing what are the dependencies they create by moving to such a cloud provider. Are they having some other problems, like you mentioned, minimization, and they don't use that, uh, that effort to look into these other issues, which are much more important and which, where I see many more risks than in this lawful access topic. The only difference or the problem is that this lawful access topic is very emotional and it's getting ideological. And these other aspects are then falling away because people think, oh, we, we have anyhow no other choice than to use Microsoft or Google or these kind of things. And how can we change their contracts and these 
uh, points. And that's where I think you lose sight. I think if we were to all spend the money of these lawful access discussions on cybersecurity, then I think we would have a much safer world. And I'm much more afraid of cyber criminals than of the foreign authorities, much more. And if you look at all the cases, the ransomware cases and all these kind of things, that's where I really am staying awake at night, although I have a very well sleep, which is necessary. <laughs> well, I think that is a great note to end with. And I have to say that I wholeheartedly agree with that. And I really wish that several of, for example, my clients would rather spend the money on better security than all these legal document exercises uh, that we are also duplicating across the entire Europe. Can you imagine how many TIAs there are now out there for Google and Microsoft and the likes? So with that, David, thank you so much again for coming on to our uh, grumpy GDPR podcast. And I really think that your FAQ will help a lot of uh, people in our community. So thanks again for that. Thank you. You're welcome. And thank you for inviting me.